This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The invasion of Iraq may well be remembered as the first oil currency war, far from being a response to 9-11 terrorism or Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction. Our guest today, William R. Clark, argues that the invasion was precipitated by two converging phenomena, the imminent peak in global oil production and the ascendance of the euro currency. For six years, Clark was a manager of performance improvement at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is now an information security analyst. His research on oil depletion, oil currency issues, and U.S. geostrategy received two Project Censored awards. He is the author of the book, Petrodollar Warfare, Oil, Iraq, and the Future of the Dollar. William Clark, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You call Iraq the first oil depletion and oil currency war of the 21st century. Can you explain that to us? I mean, it's a big question. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'll try to do that uh, concisely. Basically, uh, I think that the two big challenges of facing the Bush administration when it came to power was the fact that Cheney and Bush and a lot of the cabinet members, Condoleezza Rice, etc., understand uh, the global oil situation fairly well. And if you look back at speeches that... Dick Cheney was giving when he was a CEO of Halliburton back in 1999. He gave an interesting speech in London where he talked about how over the next 15 years that the world would need to find an additional 50 million barrels of oil to meet growing demand within the United States and China and India, et cetera. Now, 50 million barrels of oil is five Saudi Arabias. And he said this in 1999. And at the time, I think there was a, a belief that the Caspian Sea region Uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and those areas would have maybe 200 billion barrels of oil, so there's a lot of focus on that in the late 1990s. But it turns out there wasn't nearly as much oil there. But I think they came into power realizing that peak oil was on the horizon, and I think that that has always been an issue. In fact, Vice President Cheney's very first assignment by the Bush administration was to do the National Energy Policy, which was released in May of 2001. Now, the second issue that they were facing was the fact that of 2000, Saddam switched to the euro as his oil transaction currency, which wasn't a huge deal if it was just Iraq. The problem is that Iran was talking about it, and other countries, even Russia, was talking about it. So the dollar as a world reserve currency is the standard transaction and pricing or unit of account for global oil sales, which is the largest commodities. Uh, market in the world, approximately five billion dollars will be uh, petrodollars will be sold today, and tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and every day thereafter regarding uh, global oil sales. So when Saddam switched to euro, it was a, a threat to the dollar supremacy as a world reserve currency. If other members of OPEC or other large oil exporters such as Russia, who's not a member of OPEC, began to move to the euro, so I believe that this administration came to power worried very much about the global oil energy supply. They knew most of it was in the Middle East. They also became very worried about the challenge to the dollar from the euro as a potential alternative world reserve currency, which can only happen if the euro source of wealth becomes equivalent to the dollar, which would mean that the euro would have to be an oil transaction currency because oil is the most valuable commodity on the earth as far as global trades are concerned and is the enabler of 
98% of the global transportation system and 40% of primary energy. It's been written in several books, you know, Richard Clark's book and former Secretary Apollo Neal wrote that the very first national security meeting in January of 2001 when the Bush administration came to power was how do we get rid of Saddam? And I think these are the reasons why. Just real quickly, explain to me why does it matter to me whether or not oil is traded as a euro or as a dollar? What is the real consequence to an American? Well, it's we're dealing with some macroeconomic concepts, so it's hard to explain this very succinctly, but I'll give it a shot. Okay. Basically, when the dollar is the monopoly unit of account or monopoly price, you know, $60 for a barrel of oil, that as an American, I don't really care whether the dollar goes up in value or down in value relative to other major currencies, such as the Japanese yen, the Canadian dollar, the European euro, mm-hmm. Mexican peso, because oil is priced in my currency. So if the dollar devalues 20% relative to the euro over a given year, it doesn't mean that oil in the United States gets 20% more expensive, because as long as OPEC sold oil, which they typically or traditionally were 22 to $28 a barrel of oil, which ended about the same time the Iraq War started, but that's another issue. But yeah. as long as the oil is priced only in the dollar, we don't have to worry about what they call currency risk or currency exposure. Now, on the other hand, if I was Japanese and the Japanese yen devalued 20% relative to the dollar because I have to buy oil that's priced in the dollar, which is not my currency, which is a yen, and as a Japanese person, my oil would get 20% more expensive for the same volume of oil. So that's, that's called currency risk, currency exposure, and that's just one of, there's four other things, but that's one issue to the average American. They don't really follow the foreign exchange markets, and they don't really worry about the price of oil relative to other currencies as long as oil is priced in the dollar. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Forget the other three uh, dimensions to that issue. It's it that under, I understand much more clearly why we would essentially go to war to well, make sure. But the, the most important effect, if I can just interject for just sure. a second, is the fact that petrodollar flows currently fund approximately 45% of our current account deficit. Our current account deficit is the difference between what we produce and, and what we consume. And right now, we're running an 800 plus billion dollar per year current account deficit, which basically means we borrow approximately $2.2 billion every day, 365 days a year from other countries, particularly China and Japan. The petrodollar flows, which is the money that OPEC and Russia and these other oil exporters take from their oil sales, those get channeled back into the Federal Reserve, and that allows us to expand basically the credit card limit and keep borrowing money to the tune of about $1 billion per day, currently is from petrodollar flows. So basically, we get a loan, essentially, of a $1 billion a day around the world as people engage in oil transactions. So this allows us to do all kinds of things, like build a massive military, you know, global military empire, 725 bases. It allows us to give massive tax cuts to, the, you know, the, the millionaires and the billionaires. It allows us to borrow money in a way that no other country in the world can do. No other country can borrow $2.2 billion a day, day after day. But as long as the dollar is a monopoly transaction currency for oil, as long as OPEC and all countries only accept dollars for the transaction, then we know there's a built-in demand every day or every year of about 1.8 trillion petrodollars. So no matter what happens to the dollar's valuation relative to other major currencies, as long as the dollar is the monopoly transaction currency, there's a built-in demand at $60 a barrel of about $1.8 trillion. So the Federal Reserve can basically print $1.8 trillion knowing that those dollars will be spent simply for international oil purchases. 
And what is the main determination that has gone into this uh, on the part of the OPEC and other countries who produce oil to use the dollar? Is it a political decision? Is it an ec- truly based on an economic decision? Is it based on our strength of our military? What are the what are the factors that go into them making a decision to use dollars? It's it's all three of the above. It's it's somewhat political. It's somewhat economic, and it's also uh, fear. Fear of our military. Military, right. But just to back up for a minute and just give you a short history, from World, from the end of World War II, from 1945 to 1971, the dollar was backed by gold. It was $35 per ounce for one ounce of gold. Foreign governments could either hold their dollars, U.S. dollars, in their accounts, or they could exchange their dollars for gold. And that was the Brenton Woods system. It worked for the first 26 years or thereabouts after uh, World War II. However, because of the massive debts of the Vietnam War in the 1960s, the system began to unravel around 1968-1970. By 1971, Richard Nixon had to pull or basically abandon the entire monetary system, the dollar backed by gold system in August of 1971. The dollar became a floating currency and became uh, there was a lot of inflation. There was devaluation of the dollar relative to other major currencies, in particular the German mark and the Japanese yen. OPEC at that time in 1973, after a couple of years of massive inflation and massive asset losses based on the fact they were still selling and pricing oil on the dollar, they began to look at selling oil in multiple, in multiple currencies, not just the dollar, but also you know, the Japanese yen, the German mark, the Italian lira, the French franc, the Canadian dollar, etc. And the United States intervened with Saudi Arabia because we have a very special relationship with Saudi Arabia. And we the Secretary of the Treasury flew over to Saudi Arabia in 1973 and 1974, again in 1978 under President Carter, and basically squashed these proposals. We got Saudi Arabia to say, look, don't want OPEC to sell oil multiple currencies. And so this is sort of, this is that whole political side of things that most Americans don't really understand. And a lot of economists don't want to deal with it or admit to the fact that this is a monopoly system and there are, it's not free market economics that are working. There's actually a lot of interesting history there that was revealed by a book uh, by a former Cornell economist named Dr. David Spiro called The Hidden Hand of American Jiminy, where he basically did a lot of FOIA requests for Treasury documents and CIA documents and all these things and, and calculated how this happened in the 1970s and 1980s and wrote it in a book and exposed how it actually works. And there's an economic side to it, but there's also a political side, and there's also a military side, as Saddam Hussein apparently learned. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with William R. Clark, and the book is Petrodollar Warfare, Oil, Iraq, and the Future of the Dollar. This is fascinating because this is something that we heard about around the time that the invasion of Iraq occurred in 2003, that there was some, there was some discussion in some circles about this dollar-euro connection to why we were going into Iraq, but it was immediately dismissed as fantasy as conspiracy theory and the rest of it you you seem to be giving this a lot more weight than we have been told in the mainstream media yeah i think the real conspiracy was to convince the american people that saddam had reconstituted nuclear weapons the real conspiracy on behalf of the government was to convince us that saddam had something to do with 911 that was the conspiracy what i'm talking about is just economics yeah Economics is not conspiracy. I mean, wars, you know, the famous Prussian strategist von Clausewitz said, you know, war is politics by other means. And so economic war, uh, if you look back throughout the, the history of uh, contemporary warfare, especially the last hundred years, look at World War One and World War Two, et cetera, you can see that economics played and 
control of natural resources, control of oil played a very much an important part of both World War I and World War II. And so it's only conspiracy because it's what the media wants to say to dismiss anything. But really, the conspiracy was the one when the president said that Saddam, you know, had bought yellow cake from Niger, mm-hmm. <laughs> that he had aluminum tubes and he was going to rebuild his nuclear weapons, and Cheney saying, we believe, in fact, that he has a reconstituted nuclear weapons program, and if we don't go and invade Iraq to disarm him, there's going to be mushroom clouds over U.S. cities. That was a conspiracy. What I'm just talking about is just the economics of what... Right. The, the dollar and the petrodollar and petrodollar cycling and the threat to the dollar from the euro as an alternative world reserve currency. And some people just, you know, didn't want to deal with that because it means that our motives for engaging in the war may not be pure. And people don't like to think that we may be engaging in warfare. Over currency. Yes. <laughs> very yeah, it's not it's not a happy story. It doesn't it, it doesn't cause the fourth of July flag waving parade type of type of reaction right. with the most people. Right. Now, you say that uh, we need a revolutionary course correction in our en- energy policy to right. to really get on our feet here. Can you talk a little bit about what that course correction will mean? And, and Mike has well, I just to have one here. thing I want to throw in here, and okay. I, because I do. That's, a, that's, what I, that's where I want to go with the discussion okay. here. But do you accept the premise that America has an empire and that, that this is a big part of what we're maintaining and protecting? Yeah, I, I accept the premise as outlined in, in Clambers Johnson's book, The Sorrows of Empire. He also wrote a book called Blowback. He has a book coming out, I think, next month called Nemesis, mm-hmm. third and final book on this. But he talks about the United States as an empire military bases. We have 725, at least 725 military bases, overseas military bases. Not the United States, we're talking overseas bases. Right and military operating in 130 countries out of the 190 or so listed by the United Nations. So basically, uh, in the 18th and 19th century, you would, colonialism and empire was, you would count the number of colonists as to how big your empire was. You know, and the British used to say that the sun never sets on the British Empire because they have colonies in India and in Africa and all the different time zones. Well, today's colonialism and today's imperialism and empire is based on the amount of military bases you have. It's not the number of colonists. It's the number of military bases, and we have them um, all over the globe. And that's why I accept that the premise by Clemens Johnson and others that we are, in fact, an empire of military bases, something that no other empire has ever been able to... Uh, to pull off. And now... <laughs> now I, I just want to establish that, but now the, the question that Nathan asked. Yeah, just on the course correction that's going to have to occur yeah. here. The country seems to be in a... Our country seems to be in a mess economically. Uh, we're, we're splitting our, uh, our defenses, our military defenses, and in general, we're, we're facing a peak oil situation by 2010. What do you suggest we do about all this? Well, right. I, well, the ugly fact of the matter is that the whole world is going to be facing, in my opinion, a liquid fuels energy crisis that will be full-blown 10 years from now. There won't be any debate about it, I don't think, in, in 2017. There's a debate about it in 2007, but I think within four or five, and certainly no more than 10 years, it'll just be accepted as fact. So we are currently spending about $5.8 billion every month fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan when I say we need a course correction, I think we need to draw, pull our troops out. Instead of spending $5.8 billion or $6 billion fighting a nationalist war that we're not going to be able to win, I think we ought to spend that 
five to six billion dollars a month here in this country building light rail systems, building renewable energy systems, building photovoltaic, massive photovoltaic systems, massive wind farms, you know, on the coastal regions, wave and tidal power systems. We need to spend the money that we're currently wasting on our empire military bases towards massive renewable energy projects, the kind of stuff that we did in the 1930s during the Great Depression and again in, in the 1940s to World War II. I, I was at Hoover Dam just earlier this month out in uh, Nevada, and that was built in the early 1930s. It was a, it's a massive structure. I think it's uh, quite a feat of engineering, but those type of projects, those massive civil engineering infrastructure projects regarding energy is what we need to be spending our money and our time on instead of sending our poor soldiers over there to fight a war where they're not wanted and they don't belong and they're coming back horribly wounded and are killed and uh, traumatized. We need to stop all that and and hold hands with the world community, the industrialized nations, in particular European Union, Japan, China, and India, and say, look, we've all got, we all live on the same planet. Peak oil is imminent. We need to spend our money our brain power, our capital, and get our citizens aligned all towards this goal to overcome this tremendous transition that we as a planet will have to, our human species, I should say, will have to, uh, to address. And, you know, climate change is a part of that issue, but climate change happens so slowly it's hard to get people really incentivized and motivated of that, whereas peak oil, I think, it won't be so uh, slow. It will probably be a year after the peak, you know, come out in the newspaper and say, hey, you know, we actually produced less oil globally this year than last year. This doesn't make any sense. And then from that point forward, I think people understand that it's a finite resource and we've reached maximum production of oil and that we need to change courses to uh, mitigate that. And this will, take trillions, this will take trillions of dollars. I mean, there's reports that have been done by the Department for this part of Energy and the Department of Defense are very candid, although the administration won't dare talk about it. There are reports that are provided to the government regarding peak oil, and it basically makes a statement that a free market system won't be able to respond to this because the, the quote, price signals, end quote, will occur too late. So it'll take years to make the transition. It'll take decades to make the transition. So we have to get... We have to get on the ball on this right now. William Clark, we're speaking with today. Uh, the book is Petrodollar Warfare, Oil, Iraq, and the Future of the Dollar. And in addition to the book, you've written an essay yeah. uh, by the title of uh, It's Energy and the Economy, Stupid. It's an a, um, open letter to U.S. policymakers. Yeah. You sent this off to uh, the Committee on Energy and Natural Resources earlier this month. Have you heard anything at all back? No, I, I haven't. I, I've sent it to pretty much all the presidential contenders for 2008. I've mailed it to several people. I haven't. I don't expect them to write back and say, "Oh yes, we got your letter on peak oil, and we approve all your recommendations." Thank you very much. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't expect that to happen. I will say that that I sent it to Senator Bingaman early this year, and there was it was about a week before his meeting that he had on the global oil balance, or it was a meeting called the Geopolitics of Oil, and it was held in D.C. on January the 10th. And there is an article on global public media that talks about that, and the, and the senators that were at that meeting were really shocked at the information that was presented to them. So there is a growing awareness within the U.S. policymakers that this issue about who controls oil, how much of it's left, and, and these kind of things is, is really coming to, uh, bubbling up to the surface, but it, we, it needs to be the number one thing we need to be focused on, instead of talking about the war on terror, we need to talk about the global peak oil crisis and what we're going to do about it, because we're too easily distracted by all these other other tragic things that are taking place that are 
underlying reason is this issue about energy and economics, and that's what's causing some of these problems. And we need to focus on the root cause of what's causing these geopolitical tensions and why these soldiers are in Iraq and what's happening with us versus Russia and Iran and Venezuela and European Union and India and China and all these different things. It's all about energy because these governments know that we are approaching peak oil. I wrote this letter to U.S. policymakers to say, look, what we're doing right now is what we call imperial overstretch. You know, this is what great powers tend to do when they're in decline. They go spend much money on the military and they go try to conquer nations, but all that really does is accelerate their demise. So we need to begin to mitigate that and, and manage our decline by spending instead of $5.8 billion a month to fight a war in Iraq, we need to spend the $5 billion eight per month here at home on energy reconfiguration. And that means transportation, it means agriculture, it means electrical systems, it means everything. Maybe the, the figure I have is inaccurate, but be, between Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. is spending somewhere around $8 billion a, a month. So, okay. Um, could be. I read 5.8 was the official statistic, but that okay. was probably in the middle of 2006. Okay. So. Well, this is why I just heard this last week again. But uh, And uh, something that bears repeating that you mentioned just a few minutes ago, which is that by the time market the marketplace tells us that we've hit peak oil, it's too late. It's the canary in the coal mine, basically. We will not have the resources nor the time to do a course correction. We, we will be way behind in our, right. in, in, in our ability to, to, to transform ourselves. And I'm going to throw another wet blanket on this discussion, Uh-oh. and that is, given where we are in Iraq and, and this imperial overreach that you talk about, we're in kind of a Gordian knot. We have to stay in Iraq for a lot of political reasons and such. But we also have to leave in order to essentially save ourselves. How is it that we're going to get out of this without taking a severe hit? I'm talking about America. How how is we're going to take a hit on this, aren't we? We already are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the question is how many more dead? Right. How well, much more money? Yeah, how much how, more money? Right. How much more damage? Yeah. Senator Warner, uh, who's a Republican in Virginia, said recently he remembers the Vietnam War. We we were doing surges in 1966. In 1967, in 1968, in 1969, until we had half a million troops in Vietnam in 1969. So we were surging month after month. Yeah. We still couldn't win the war. Yeah. We eventually had to leave. So the Iraq's the same situation. Just like the Soviet Union when it invaded Afghanistan in 1979, it thought it would be, they'd be over in a few months. They didn't leave until 1989, 10 years later, but it was the end of the empire. That's what brought about, that was one of the reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed was the amount of attrition and damage that that 10-year war in Afghanistan brought on them. Yeah. And likewise, we are following the same path. So we we have to leave. I mean, the Iraqis don't want us there. Yeah. So instead of spending or borrowing from the Chinese and Japanese and South Koreans 6 or $8 million, I'm sorry, billion dollars a month, why don't we take that money and spend it here at home and bring the soldiers home? Because those soldiers are suffering. And just as the former... Soldiers in the Soviet Union suffered it in Afghanistan. We are suffering in Iraq, and it's time to yeah. to cut our losses. Yes, it will take a political hit, but if we tell the world community, if we had real leadership say, look, we've got to deal with this crisis, we're going to work through multilateral accords, we're going to reduce our consumption because we are the world's largest oil consumer and we have very gluttonous consumption levels, 25% of the world's hydrocarbons, 5% of the world's population. You do the math, you can see that we are burning twice as much oil as the average European. And the Europeans, they have a very comfortable lifestyle. We're burning about 15 times more than the average Chinese person. So if we step back 
and told the United Nations, the United said, look, we're going to change course. We're going to work on energy. We're going to pull our troops back, but we need your help because we can only move forward together on this. Right. I think the world would say, great. Yeah. That you guys have finally come to your senses. We'll be glad to help you out. Let's work on this together. Yes. Right. A lot of fighting, fighting in the Persian Gulf to control that oil is just it's a strategy of failure. Yeah. We've run out of time, William Clark. By the way, I, I hate to point out that we're run by two oil men. The country is being <laughs> run by two oil men. But uh, that's for another time and another discussion. Uh, the book is Petro Dollar Warfare, Oil, Iraq, and the Future of the Dollar. We've been speaking with William Clark. Thank you for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you very much for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>